the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. A priest, a judge, and an engineer were sentenced to be killed by guillotine. They placed the priest's head down in the contraption. And they asked him, do you have any last words? And he said, I believe in the mercy and justice of God. They let go of the blade and it stopped within inches of his neck. And they let him go. They put the judge's head in the guillotine. And he said, I believe in the mercy and justice of the law. And sure enough, they let the blade go, and once again, it stopped inches from his neck. Then they put the engineer's head in the guillotine. He said, I don't know much about God, and I don't know much about the law. But as an engineer, I do know there probably shouldn't be a knot right there in the rope that's stopping the blade. And you can imagine what happened. We've been talking about knowledge and how just knowing and spouting out the facts is not enough when it comes to making decisions in the Christian life in regards to gray areas. In fact, like that engineer, just spouting the facts without thinking of the situation can cause harm to oneself and harm to others. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and by way of review, we've covered verses 1 through 6 in this whole chapter, and uh, even the next, as Paul talks about his own choices and freedoms. But in chapter 8, he's talking about the liberty, Christian liberty, Christian freedom, gray areas, areas that are not condemned specifically in the Scripture or forbidden in the Scripture, and areas of life that are not commanded in Scripture, things like drinking alcohol, smoking, holding hands before marriage, or in this particular situation for the ancient Corinthian church, eating meat that had been sacrificed to pagan idols. And that's how Paul sets the foundation of the gray areas. He's addressing a particular issue, but the principles help us in understanding all of it. And he talked about, in verses 1 through 3, knowledge versus love. He says, knowledge just puffs up. It makes you arrogant, but love edifies. And what he's saying is, yes, all Christians know that idols are not real, and thus the meat that was sacrificed to the idols are nothing. It's not any more or less spiritual than any other meat. In fact, it's better meat because of the type of animals they were required to bring for the sacrifices. And so, Christians like to buy that meat. And what we'll see as we continue in chapter 8 is Christians would actually enjoy the feasts at the temple. It wasn't part of the worship. It was just a big party, a nice meal, uh, a good buffet. 
on their day of sacrifices, and so they would be invited and enjoy perhaps even fellowship with other Christians among the pagans that were there. He goes on, as we saw last week, to explain what that knowledge is. He says this knowledge is still important. And we saw last week how he compares and contrasts the real God, our real God, with idols. Idols are nothing. God is real. And God is one. We don't need many gods. Our God and Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, is not just a supreme God and there are many other gods. There is only one God. He is enough. He is sovereign. He does it all. He created it all. He sustains it all. You know, we we use phrases in the church like loving and gracious God. Our God is a loving and gracious God. And that's good because we want to focus on the fact that He's loving. That's wonderful. We want to focus on the fact that He's gracious. That is superb. But the most important word in that phrase, loving and gracious God, is the word God. He is God. And we must be careful what we do, how we serve Him, how we approach Him. We exist because of Him. We exist for Him, as we saw last week. And that, even though it seemed like He was helping the cause or the argument of those Christians who wanted to eat the sacrificed meat, He's actually setting up a foundation for how we should live as Christians in regards to gray areas, how we are to live out our Christian freedom, the things that we are allowed to do. We have the authority to do, but may not be the best for others. And so this week and next week as we continue on, we will look at our continuing series on limiting liberty. This week and next, the right choice, how to make the right choice in regards to our liberty, how to limit it. And as he often does, having established the theological premise, Paul now gets practical regarding eating meat sacrificed to idols, and by virtue of that, practical helps for all gray areas because, frankly, for probably all of us in our culture where we live right now, if you're from this area or the United States, the issue of causing another Christian to stumble because you're eating meat sacrificed to idols is not an issue at all. But there are other gray areas in our life, and there will be different gray areas as time goes on. Some of them will be the same. Some of them will continue to grow. Some of them don't exist now because the technology doesn't exist. But as things change, as cultures change, as society changes, as laws change, as technology changes, there will be gray areas that we cannot even conceive of today. And so it's helpful, as with all things in the Christian life, to go back to our hearts, to the basic foundational principles of the Scriptures. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. And what I've just done is given you a review of verses 1 through 6. Over these next two weeks, we'll cover verses 7 through 13. He writes, However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, 
dining in an idol's temple. Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Six factors we will look at over the next two weeks. Six factors in choosing to limit your Christian liberty. In other words, when it comes to limiting our freedoms and when it comes to choosing how to practice or avoid gray areas, there are six factors that we need to consider. We'll look at the first three this morning and the last three next Sunday. Six factors in choosing to limit your Christian liberty. And by the way, I want to make it clear that I did not say six factors in choosing whether or not to limit your Christian liberty. Six factors in choosing to limit your Christian liberty. First factor is the background of the brethren. The background of the brethren. Let me read for you again verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Remember that many, if not the majority of the Corinthian believers, this is the early church. This is not like the church today, which is firmly established all over the world. This is the early church. Christianity is a new religion. Christ has recently died and resurrected and ascended into heaven, thus starting Christianity, starting the church. And so many of these now Christians were idols, idol worshipers. Because it's not like today where if you're not a Christian, you may be nothing. Uh, I'm agnostic, I'm atheist, I don't know, I've never thought about it. Back then, religion was an integral part of society. And so if you weren't a Christian, if you weren't a Jew, you were most likely worshiping in one of these uh, religious cults or one of these established polytheistic religions, the ones we all studied uh, about, Zeus and Aphrodite and, and all of those. And so having, Paul, established that all Christians have the same knowledge regarding idols, now that they are believers, whether they were uh, idol pagan worshipers before or not, they know now that there is only one true God. They all know that. But then Paul now says that not all Christians have this knowledge. He said we all have this knowledge, and now he says we don't all have this knowledge. It seems confusing, so let me clarify, because it's very important as he gets into the practical matters of how to decide regarding gray areas. The people that Paul is referring to are the believers in Corinth. We need to make that very clear. His main concern is that the Christians who are eating the meat not hurt the Christians who do not want to eat the meat. In other words, this is a family affair. He is addressing Christians so that they would consider other Christians. Among these believers, not all of them have the same experiential and emotional component to the knowledge that idols are not real. And this is what Paul is talking about, that not all have this knowledge. 
The facts are the same. Idols are not real. But the environment, the background, the fears, and other factors are different for every individual. Specifically, he says, some are, I quote, accustomed to the idol. Or the ESV says, have a former association with the idol. In other words, there's a difference in knowledge in that one Christian who was just born as an agnostic or maybe even into a Christian family and became a Christian knows there is no God or no other gods, I should say. There is only one God. That same fact, biblical fact, the former idol worshiper has, but his knowledge includes things he used to do, understanding of how to worship that god or goddess, memories, sins. And for them, the statement, idols are nothing, involves many interconnected aspects of their background, much like you. You know that you are a new creation. You know that you are no longer enslaved to the sins that you were once enslaved to, but you have memories. You have thoughts. It causes you to stumble. It affects you. It hurts you. And for these people, knowledge of the facts that idols are not real involves inseparable knowledge of things they have seen in idol worship things they have done, things their family members continue to do in their homes. Sure. For you, it's just a nice meal with friends. The temple worship is over. It's just a nice meal with friends commemorating something that you know is non-existent. So it's okay. But for her, that room is filled with vile memories and satanic experiences. So how is she going to feel when you bring her there or she sees you in there? For us, sure, it's just a place to hang out with friends after work, play some pool. But for him, it's a place where he picked up many women for one-night stands. So don't let him see you there. Don't go there. Sure, for you, it's just a simple gesture of affection as our relationship increases just hand-to-hand clothes on. But for her, it was the first step that led to her spending the night with her ex. We could go on. But you can clearly see in your mind's eye the depth and power of the memories those situations could bring back. Memories that could lead to sin. Memories that Paul will later say that could drive a believer back into an old system of worship in patterns of gross sin. In regard to the weak conscience that he mentions here, it's not just about their family or religious background that makes them have a weak conscience, but also their spiritual maturity. How long they have been a Christian. How well or poorly they have been taught. How involved they have been in service and in the church. Probably not so much in Paul's day, but it's unfortunate that there are so many people today that have been Christians for decades, yet for those many years they were taught bad, wrong, liberal, weak, or just plain silly theology. So naturally their spirituality, their spiritual maturity reflects that. They are more spiritually immature than someone who's attended and been actively involved in a solid church for six months. Got saved 
back in August. As a side note, the more involved you are in the church, the more you will grow spiritually. Not just listening to sermons, not just reading your Bible, but serving one another, being involved, getting to know people. Because in that, you learn to practice humility, love, and self-sacrifice. You allow others to sharpen you through their examples, good and bad, and their instruction into your life, not just generic, if you can call it that way, in a sermon to 100 people. We refer refer to that as biblical fellowship here at Grace. But back to the particular situation. These weaker brethren, due to their backgrounds, would eat this meat as if it was sacrificed to an idol, Paul says. The stain or the the taint of idolatry still sticks in their minds and it clings to that meat. Even though they know intellectually that there's nothing to that meat, but in that bite of steak are dozens of experiences and memories that are just wicked. Their former way of life is so intertwined with their consciousness and emotions that they cannot easily rid themselves of these old associations. For them, eating the meat is directly connected to idolatry and thus connects them to idolatry and you to idolatry if you were to eat that meat. And something to keep in mind in helping us understand that is that although the idols were not real, and you understand this from religions today, although the idols were not real, the practices within idolatry were very real. So Paul goes on to explain that when you have someone who thinks and feels this way when it comes to eating sacrificed meat, when you disregard them, when you say, idols are not real, so I'm just going to go join this feast, you do damage. Paul says their conscience already being weak is defiled. And the reason their conscience is called weak is because of their, the ability for their old desires and their old feelings to come back. We experience this all the time. Remember, the conscience is the Holy Spirit-guided warning system. So part of them having a weak conscience means that they lack clarity regarding what's right or wrong, which in turn makes them unable to form sound, healthy, biblical, spiritual judgments. It breaks down as that individual's guide to what is holy. And when they see other believers partaking in the temple meals, their already weak conscience is defiled, which means, the word Paul uses here, to make dirty, to stain, to soil, to pollute, to contaminate. And in this particular situation, of course, we're talking about religious and moral contamination. Again, just, it's just eating, as we'll see in the next verse. The, the, the action in and of itself is not wrong. Putting something into my mouth and letting my mouth and my body digest it is not wrong. But for this person to be told by your words or your deeds that eating this meat is okay can lead to confusion. Again, digging up 
of sinful thoughts from their past life, feelings of guilt, loss of joy and peace, or worse, going back. We get this. Some of you, because you are now Christians, cannot go back to your high school reunions because of the people you'll see there, the things you did to them, just being in that gym, the sins that you committed there. You can't do it. Many drug relapses we know are from visiting the places or encountering the same people that were in their life in times of heavy drug use. Certain places, people, or experiences, even smells. You guys ever experienced that? You smell something and you're right back on that place you were as a kid or, or back on vacation or wherever you had. It happens to me all the time with Albania. I smell something or just hear something and just flood of, for, thankfully for me, joyful memories. But those things can trigger temptations. How much more when a mature Christian goes to those places, befriends those people, or engages in those experiences, and the weaker, formerly drug-addicted Christian sees it. We know the same could be said for so many other sins. And in the verse, the connection and the source is clear. It is you who practice your Christian liberty in this way. You are the ones who are defiling the conscience of a weaker brother. So there is no place for, well, he's just weak. It's a, I'm not responsible. You are responsible. That's what Paul's saying here. And if you don't believe Paul, read the rest of the New Testament. You are responsible for me. I'm responsible for you. We're all responsible for each other. That's what a family is. And notice Paul doesn't say that you must grow them up Teach them. Make them wise. He doesn't say to challenge them because of their immaturity and rebuke them for a lack of spiritual growth. No, he says love them and stop eating the meat. You're the problem here. I was so discouraged years ago to uh, read a blog entry from uh, a, a friend of mine who was impactful in my spiritual growth in college. and He was at the time a pastor in this area. And the blog article started, I'm your pastor. You see me through a window. I'm eating a meal and drinking a beer. And he goes on, I'll summarize, he says, then you have a problem with it. Christians, pastors, shouldn't be drinking alcohol. And the summary was, you're the problem because you're just an immature Christian and you don't get it. That's true. He is the weaker brother. But he's not the problem. Yes, there's a place for teaching that we don't add to the Scriptures. We don't call something sin if the God doesn't call it sin. But there's a place for love. There's a place for compassion. There's a place for considering others when it comes to these things and saying, I'm going to keep doing it. You're the immature one. Read your Bible, buddy. Don't you get it? That's, that's not love. That's going back to knowledge. And you see right there in that example why Paul says knowledge just makes arrogant. It just puffs you up. 
You see, when it comes to gray areas and Christian liberty, we saw that we must exhibit love. And a big part of that is recognizing that we all have different backgrounds, experiences, and maturity levels, and that's okay. That's okay. And I get it's different, but I don't yell at my kids because they don't get something. Daddy has vertigo. You drive us. Immature. Here's the manual. You know how to read? No. You say, it's okay, buddy. Daddy will handle this. You don't even know. You don't even address it. You don't even say it. Why can't I drive? Oh, you know, maybe someday. You don't even bring it up. You just stop and love. We need to understand the background of the brethren. And I do want to clarify, and I'll make mention of this again later, that to make the right decision regarding Christian liberty in gray areas and involving the background of other believers does not necessitate that you even know the specifics of their background. It doesn't matter. You understand? You've you got to know what, their, the, what sins are. This was a prevalent issue back then. They should know this. Okay? We're not talking about just one-time little thing that a weaker brother sees and it causes you to stumble and it's not even an, an, an issue anywhere. We're not saying that every little thing you need to be careful now and because someone could be watching, it could cause you to stumble. We're talking about big issues that could draw into a lifestyle of idolatry, alcoholism, promiscuity. Do you understand? So you know those things exist. You know those things are part of society. And so you don't have to know. You say, well, I'm going to just keep doing this until someone tells me that they struggled with sleeping around before they were a believer. No, you don't need to know that. So what I'm saying is you don't need to know the specifics. You don't even need to know if someone in, the, in our particular church has this issue. We just need to love. And of course, if it becomes clear that someone does, all the more. Well, let's move to a second factor in choosing to limit your Christian liberty, and that is the impotence of the issue. The impotence of the issue. Look at verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. See, food is neutral in the sense that it will not affect our relationship with God. It does not, he says, commend us to God. The word commend means to pre- present someone, introduce to someone. The NIV says, bring near. And here it's for the sake of praise or condemnation. And what Paul is saying is on the one hand, the refusal to eat certain foods does not mean that we are somehow hurting our relationship with God. On the other hand, because the people eating the food are saying they're more mature, eating certain foods does not somehow advance our relationship with God. Food is spiritually neutral. Now, to be clear, I am talking about the food itself, the physical act of eating. We know as Christians that even in the mundane things such as food, our attitude in or approach to the action can bring glory to God or do the opposite. 
In fact, in the key verse calling us to, to do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31, the examples given are whether you eat or drink, we are to honor Him. And the very context of 1 Corinthians 8 tells us that choosing to eat or not to eat can either honor God by preferring others or dishonor God when you defile another's conscience. But the motivation, the thought life, or any other emotional or intellectual aspect of eating is not what we're talking about here. Paul in this verse is saying the simple act of putting food into your mouth in and of itself does nothing to your relationship with God. So stop thinking that way. And what Paul wants to make clear is that, as with all things, it is your heart that is important. For things that are explicitly commanded or forbidden in Scripture, just doing those things is not enough. You know that. Just coming to church is not enough. Just sharing the gospel is not enough. God looks at the heart. God wants to know why you're doing it. And the role of the heart is equally important in gray areas such as food. In the latter half of the verse, Paul says that the people who refuse to eat the temple food are not in any way hurting God's view of them. And in the same way, eating the food does not in any way strengthen God's view of them. It's spiritually neutral. It's food. I'm thankful for food. I like food. You can clearly tell. But it's just food. It's spiritually neutral. And this truth can be brought into our modern culture with choices such as eating meat, being vegan, choosing organic, etc. Those things in and of themselves do not bring you into the presence of God for His approval or disapproval. Again, the heart issue, which is what Paul is setting up here, is important. For example, if you're a bad steward of His money because you like shopping at Whole Foods when you can't afford it, then there's a problem. That may be dishonoring to God. If you believe choosing a certain diet gives you more energy, which you follow in order to serve Him better, that's a good thing. That honors God through food. Again, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But vegetables, meat, organic, overpriced or bargain value, whatever, in and of themselves, do not have any spiritual value or spiritual influence. It is your heart. We see Paul say pretty much the same thing in regard to physical circumcision. 1 Corinthians 7.19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God, keeping in mind that the two greatest commandments are to love. For the sake of time, I'm not going to have you turn there, but Galatians 5.6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Same principle in 1 Corinthians 8. Galatians 6.15, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, which is what we are. And you can replace circumcision and uncircumcision with eating meat, sacrifice to idols, or any number of gray areas. Alcohol or abstinence is nothing but faith working through love. Holding hands or not holding hands do not mean anything, but what matters to God is the keeping of His commandments. Again, not licensed to do what you want, but to seek to prefer others in those gray areas. Why is this important in this topic? It is a reminder 
that we as Christians, whether the Corinthians 2,000 years ago or in Burlingame, California in 2021, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. And what is the main thing? God's glory. God's glory. Christian, prioritize God's glory. This means prioritizing the things that bring Him glory. And we know that obedience brings Him glory for sure. Gray areas, not so much. Gray areas pursued without considering others, absolutely not. We need to glorify God. Many of you have heard me say this before. If you were to write out a list of priorities, your priority list, right? We'd have all the, you know, the, 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 we'd all have many similar things. God, church, family if you have one, work, health, right? And I've told you this before that God's glory should not be on that list. Rather, God's glory is the ink with which you write that list. Because you need to adjust your life so that everything on your priority list is about Him. Well, we've seen that we need to consider the background of the brethren, understand the impotence of the issue, speaking, of course, of gray areas. Our third and final for today of our six factors in choosing to limit your Christian liberty is the danger of the decision. And here we start getting to some key principles as Paul explains the potential impact your decisions regarding gray areas may have on others. And he speaks of a danger. We've already seen that in Defiling Conscience. Verse 9, the danger of the decision. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. We do have liberty. We do have freedom. Christian freedom the right to do certain things in God's eyes. The word liberty means an allowance, a privilege, a right. It's the power or authority to do something. And these Christians have every right to eat the meat sacrificed to idols. In the same way, that's the challenge of all gray areas. You're allowed to do it. We can do it. In and of itself, it's not sin. And this goes back to the truth that knowledge is simply not enough. Just because you're allowed to do it does not mean that it is the right thing to do. Just because you are allowed to do it does not mean it's the right thing to do. Love means giving up your liberties for the sake of of others. This can be challenging in our society because our society is all about doing what's best for you and what feels good to you. Both in our society and the church, rights, liberty, freedom, these words become a battle cry for those who want to indulge their appetites regardless of the effect on others. They call it freedom and equality. The Bible calls it selfish and unloving. The significance of love 
in the Christ-like way is seen not just in that we are refusing rights that may physically harm others. It goes further to ensure the spiritual strength of others. In this day of modern technology and communication, your actions can impact those that live thousands of miles away, people you don't even know, people you haven't seen in decades. Because you post a picture of you doing something or at a place or interacting with someone that causes them to stumble. Not to mention what you do physically in another person's presence. And all for what? I want, I feel, I deserve. It's a common thread there. I, me, looking out for number one. Well, what does this lack of love and consideration do? Paul says it can become a stumbling block to the weak. A stumbling block, as you could probably guess from the English, is a, something that trips someone up. It's an obstacle in someone's path that can cause them to trip and fall and even hurt themselves. Metaphorically, this is something that causes someone to sin and suffer spiritual injury, especially those who are already spiritually weak, immature. All of this really comes down to a simple biblical principle. And it is this. What is more important to you? You or others? What's more important to you? Others including in God's uh, order of priority. This is a real order of priority. God, His people, then the world, others, or yourself. If it's you, you go on exercising your rights and act in accordance with your freedom. If it's others, you model Christ and live the life that God created you to live and the life that Christ died for you to live. You want to talk about rights? <laughs> you, you can't uh, give up that little f- fun in the back seat with your boyfriend and girlfriend. You can't give up that glass of wine or whatever it may be. Again, I'm not saying you have to stop those things. I'm just giving common examples. How about living pain-free, exhaustion-free, as God, very God in heaven, giving up those rights to die on a cross. He didn't just call us, but his very example of giving up his rights for the sake of others, he died so that we could give up our rights for the sake of others. Do nothing. Not some things, not when you're tired, not when your wife needs you, not after a... a, 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 a after finals week, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of, humility of mind. Regard others as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Philippians 2, 3-4, as you know, my favorite passage in the Bible. Christian, you do not live alone. You may physically live alone, but you get what I'm saying. You don't live alone. No matter how much you may 
isolate yourself, how much you may feel like you don't belong, you're not part of. You are interconnected. And as I said last week, you are influential simply based on the fact that you exist. And more to the point, you exist and have been redeemed. Well, I don't even go to church. Why do I matter? Guess what your non-attendance does to us? Guess what your non-attendance tells the new believer is okay to do? Speaking of Christ's death on the cross, He lived and died to create a community, His body, the church, in which we live not as separate individuals doing as we please, but we live life together. Iron sharpens iron, but do it wrong and iron can dull iron. You've seen it before. You've sharpened your kitchen knives. You take that block and you've got to hold it right at the blade at the right angle. You don't put it perpendicular to the blade and start rubbing. But we do that with our actions. We dull and defile the consciences of the weak. And what Paul is talking about here is true wisdom. To live in a way that models Christ's concern for the weak to the point of renouncing his own rights to the point of death on a cross. Right there, you need to recognize that that means ultimately you all, we all fall in the category of weak because we needed Christ to renounce his rights for us. Can you do, can you not do the same for the spiritually weak but redeemed? You will rarely hear me say this, so enjoy while you can. We can actually learn something from society here. In so many political and social issues, what people are fighting for is not just the right to do something, but something bigger. The right to choose. They may protest, they may fight, they may do things for, for something to exist, and they may not even partake of that thing to exist. They're not even the correct race to partake of certain things like that. But what they are fighting for is the right. The right. Be a little disappointed, but don't really care if no women vote, but at least give them the right to choose. Give them the right to choose. Do they choose to do it? I don't care, but at least they have the choice. And when it comes to gray areas, we have both. We have the right to do it, and we have the right to choose. Before the Christian, the power comes not in indulging our desires, but in choosing to prefer others, which to the context means choosing not to exercise that right. Because there is danger there. And we stop there in the passage, and next week we'll see the danger is way worse than what we've seen so far. Six factors in choosing to limit your Christian liberty. We've seen three this morning. The background of the brethren, the impotence of the actual issue, but the danger of the decision.
However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And we pick up there next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clarity of your word of what we're supposed to do and not do. Thank you for, from this passage for the clarity of your word that even tells us what we are to do when your word is not clear on the issue. We're thankful. I'm thankful for gray areas in this passage because it drives us to biblical fellowship. It pushes us to love. It pushes us to self-sacrifice. It pushes us to taste and experience just a fraction of what you experienced in giving up your rights for the sake of us, the weak and needy. Help us who are weak to be willing to speak up. Help us who are more mature to not get cocky or arrogant, but be willing to give up. Help us all to love in this way for your name's sake, in which we pray. Amen.